actually didn't make a shahakal on this, I made a shahakal on that. Okay. Good evening. So tonight is actually great. Since before COVID, or COVID, since COVID hit, we didn't have people at the class. So everything was just live on, on, um, on the channels, but not in, in person. And this week, um, it was requested to, to, to come to a class. And, I, and I, I, the benefit I had from always not having, I'm just saying this to everybody that's in the live audience, the benefit of not having the class uh, f uh, live physically, even though it's hard to get excited and passionate when you don't have anybody here, and you're just speaking, especially since I don't see the crowd. I'm not sitting in front of a computer, so I don't see the people listening, even if listening at home. So that was the downside. The good side of it was that I gave the class whenever I've, I was ready, sometimes four in the morning, sometimes when I <laughs> And then whoever wants to listen to it, listen to it at whatever their time is. Uh, so I was enjoying that. But we really need to bring the crowds back. So I am making an announcement now, even though I didn't announce this before, is that everybody's welcome to attend physically the classes again back here at Mayon. Um, Thursday nights at 8, Thursday, I mean, Tuesday, uh, Monday nights at 8, and Thursday nights at 8.30. And it would be great, great. It would be really, really fantastic to have people here uh, physically, and uh, that, would be, that would really be special. So um, that's great, great news, and a special night. Tonight is, a, we know, a uh, Hasidic holiday called Yud Beis Tammuz, the day that the uh, sixth Chabad Rebbe um, was released from prison. And um, world Jewry was able to flourish afterwards in the way that, uh, in, in addition to Soviet Jewry, but Jewry all across the world with all the work of Chabad and so on and so forth. So it's really a yamta for the Jewish people. Uh, it's a yamta for two days, Yud Beis and Yud Gimel Tamuz. So it's a good day to re-initiate re, re and open the doors again for physically having people. We could have done it many, many months ago, but for whatever reason, it didn't happen. So it was, it was bashert that it should happen tonight. So that's great. Um, this week is Parshas Bullock. And um, I'd like to talk about, obviously, the Parsha and connect it to the special day. Um, so let's, let's take a look at, and, and the way this class is going to work is we're going to do a little bit of a technical examination of uh, a few verses, a few psukim. And as a result of us sorting it out and figuring it out technically, we're then going to have a very deep, rich um, uh, inner understanding of something of the real, true inner power of the Jewish neshama, of the Jewish soul. So this week, the parsha is Balak, and usually Chukas Balak many years go together. But this year we have this year we have time to focus on each one independently. So in parsha's Balak, we have the story of the Jewish people who are already ready to enter. It's the fortieth year; they're ready to go into the land, and they circled already the the the, the country of Moab. Uh, they were warned by God not to, not to mess with Moab. Moab was to be conquered only in the days of Mashiach. Until the days of Mashiach, Moab is to be left alone. Uh, so the Jewish people circled around Moab, and they weren't going to harm the Moabites. However, when they came around on the other side, they encountered the, the Amorite kingdom, led by primarily Sichon, who was the king of the Amori, plus his buddy, the other giant, Og. And we, as we learned last week in the Parsha, the Jewish people requested passage. They did not allow passage to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people went to war. He came out to war against the Jewish people, and they decimated him. And that was like something that caused an enormous 
um, amount of fear, literally trembles in the entire region because no one can take on these two giants. And if the Jewish people defeated them, this was like world news. Um, and uh, the king of Moab, therefore, was really scared. Even though, in truth, he hadn't have what to be scared because God had warned the Jewish people. And I guess he knew somehow that Israel will not start up with him. But, but just because of the close proximity that the Jewish people will literally add his boundaries, he was terrified. And in order to secure himself, uh, he realized that the Jewish people's um, um, victory was not a physical one. It wasn't a natural one. It was a supernatural one. And he wanted to know what their power is. And he heard so much about the leader Moshe, so he, uh, he understood that the power was in Moshe. So he said, what's his power? So he went to ask the Midianites, because Moshe spent many years in Midian. As we know, when he, fled, when he ran away from Pharaoh, he ran to Midian. They wanted to kill him in Egypt. So when he was in Midian, he said, let's go check out with the Midianites. What do they say? And they told him his power is in his mouth. So they said, okay, so that means he has the power to bless, to curse, to pray. That's his power. And as a result of that, they said, if we're going to defeat him, we're going to fight him. We can't fight him by the, by the sword. We have to fight him with someone who also has the power of the mouth. So they went to, get a, they went to Bilam. Bilam was the great prophet. And they hired Bilam, or he wanted to hire Bilam. said, I'm going to pay you a crazy amount of money. Come curse. God told Bilam not to go. Bilam insisted. In the end, Bilam went. God gave him permission. He went, and uh, the rest of the Torah portion describes how Bilam is attempting to elicit a curse. He's, 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 he's attempting. Obviously, he's, he realizes he has to, he can't just say whatever he wants. He's connecting. That's the point. He's channeling. That's what a prophet does. A prophet channels. So he's got like, to like hook on to a certain channel and channel down God's word. So he's channeling and he's hoping to catch and to evoke wrath and anger. And I guess he had various different methods of doing that to, 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 um, to uh, tune into God's wrath. That was his power. And then to focus it wherever he wanted. Of course, there is something called God's wrath. So he wanted to focus in on that wrath and direct it. In the end, it didn't work out for him because... All the curses that he wanted to utter were flipped over. As the verse says, that God flipped, flipped over the curses, lebracha to a blessing. Okay. So now, there were three attempts that he made to curse the Jewish people. Balak took Bilam. Again, Balak is the king of Moab. He took Bilam up to the top of a mountain. In other words, he felt that when, by him looking at the Jewish people, he can kind of connect to their energy and, as reason, and, and then bestow a curse upon them. So he took him up to various different high locations where he can see them and so on, as we'll see. And Bilam makes three attempts to curse them. Each time, he gives blessings instead of curses. We are going to learn the first attempt. We're going to go through the verses and see what he says. Okay. So um, he takes him up on the top of the mountain. This is in Perek Chav Gimel, chapter 23. And we are holding by verse, uh, really verse... When the, the Pasuk we are going to focus on is verse number 9, Pasuk Tes. Perek Chav Gimel Pasuk Tes. But I'm going to read for a moment a few verses before that just so we get a, a context of what's going on. So he takes him up on the top of the mountain as it describes over here. And Bilam tells Balak to go and um, offer some sacrifices. I guess that was part of the process. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna connect to God. You're going to offer some sacrifices and so forth. And then God, in verse number uh, uh, four, Dalid, uh, it says, Bilam." God encounters Bilam. In other words, Bilam makes a connection. He suddenly picks up, a, he picks up a channel where God is speaking to him. That's what a prophet does. A prophet is able to channel in. 
So now Bilam says to God, I've done my preparations, God. I'm ready. Let's go ahead. Let's do this together. God puts words in the mouth of Bilam. Return to Balak. And this is what you should say to him. So he returns to him. And Balak is standing next to his sacrifice. He and all the ministers of Moab. So there was a whole entourage there. It wasn't something that was done quietly. This was the most embarrassing thing, both for Bilam and for Balak. Because, you know, Balak is, you know, he has all of the, is the Congress and the Senate. They're all standing over there. And it was Balak's brilliant idea to go ahead and get, and get Bilam. And now they bring Bilam, and he's like supposed to be the one who's going to harm them. And in the end, it ends up that he's giving them these, the greatest blessings the Jewish people ever got were from this, Gentile prophet was from this incredible anti-Semite. Now he begins with a parable. This is a very important idea. Okay, look at that word. He raises his metaphoric, um, he's speaking as prophet spoken metaphors. And he says, which is a place, the king of Moab is leading me. He led me. From the ancient mountains. Go curse for me, Jacob. Go curse Jacob for me. And go ahead and evoke wrath on Israel. So the first words he says is, What can I pronounce a curse? God does not curse him. How can I evoke wrath? God is not being angry. It says that every day God releases one moment of anger in the world. It's necessary so that the wicked can be punished. And those days, God did not get angry on purpose. So he couldn't find. He was, he was seeking to tap that moment and he couldn't get into it. Because those days, God wasn't getting angry because he was protecting Israel. And here is the verse that we're going to really spend time on. He says, Because from the tops, from the peaks of mountains, I see him. And from hilltops, I gaze at him. I gaze at Israel, simply, from a very high place. And what do I see? I see, They're a nation that sit alone. And amongst the nations, They're not counted. They are a one and only, a one and only people. They're not counted amongst the nations. So in other words, instead of saying bad things about Israel, he's praising them. He's praising them enormously. And he says, I'm seeing them from the... Now, what does he mean with these first words? I'm looking at them from the tops of mountains. And from hilltops, I see them. What does he mean by that? So the simple meaning, almost all the commentators, Ramban, Rabbeinu Bechaya, um, uh, who else? Evan Ezra, not Rashi, we'll see in a minute. Almost all commentators, what's their commentary? Their commentary is simple. Where was Bilam standing? The verse says very clearly, he took him up on a high mountain. Balak took Bilam up to a high mountain and he's looking down to the desert and he sees the Jews spread out there. So that's what he means when he says, from the tops of mountains, I see him, who? Israel. And from the hilltops, I get to see, I'm staring at them. Okay, so that's what it means. I see him from the tops of mountains. And that's, Almost all the, what we call Pashtanim. What is a Pashtanim? All those who explain Chumash, trying to keep to the literal explanation, trying to keep out from the Midrashic world. Rashi, however, 
Rashi, however, is, 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 who is supposed to be the one who stays in the literal, does something interesting. What does Rashi do? What is Rashi saying? Let's take a look at Rashi. You'll read it with me inside. What? Yeah, yeah, because he sees Israel. Israel is one nation. Okay, it's a nation, it's a people. He's referring to the people. But here's the thing. What does Rashi say? I am looking at their beginning. I'm looking at their very, 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 very origins. I'm looking at the origins. I'm looking at the historic origins of the Jewish people. And I see them, I see them founded, the chazakim, and strong, katsurim ugevois. I see them rock solid. They're like, like mountains, like firm rock mountains, and like hills. Haghalolo, al yedei avois v'yemois, through their fathers and mothers. In other words, what he's saying simply, Rashi, is I'm taking a look at Israel and I see that they have really powerful beginnings. They are founded on mountains and hills. Who's that? The mountains, again, we're re- the simple meaning how everybody learned Rashi. The mountains are the fathers, and the hills are the mothers. Uh, mountains are taller than hills, so the fathers, the patriarchs and the matriarchs. And this, and, and like we find much, many times in Navi uh, that there is a reference to our patriarchs and, father, and, and matriarchs as, as mountains and hills. So this is what Rashi says. So and again, he's not talking about where he is standing now, that I'm standing on top of a mountain peak. You know, elevation, elevation 4,368, you know, above sea level, and that's where he's standing. It's not what he's referring to. It's not referring to where he's standing. He's referring to that the Jewish people, when I, Erenu, I see him, I see Israel, I see them like mountains and hills, firm and solid, and I can't mess with them. That's the idea. They're strong. They're not demolishable. They're not destructible. I can't destroy them because they're firm, they're solid, because they have such great fathers and mothers and therefore they're too solid to, to destroy. That's what Rashi says. It's, oh, take it. it's, 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 it's explaining it's explaining how he's going to get to the blessing. He's, he's then later going to bless, but he's saying, first he's explaining like who they are and what they are and therefore they're not curseable. That's the simple meaning. The question over here is, Rashi says, states many times in Chumash that he's coming to explain pshutai shel mikra. Rashi sticks always to simple pshat, simple interpretation. And over here, obviously, is the question. All the other um, commentators who explain according to pshat are explaining it in the most simplest way possible. That what? That when he says, I'm on top of a mountain, I'm seeing him from the mountains, it's not some discussion about the Jewish people that they are compared to mountains and hills and this means fathers and mothers. That's not, he's saying where he is standing. I am looking at them from a mountain peak and from hills, from mountains, from a high place. Why does Rashi change? That's the question. Simple question. What forced Rashi to go ahead and, and seek out Midrash? Now, it's interesting. Rabbeinu Bahaya, great commentary on Chumash, um, Rabbeinu Bachaya says, the simp- he, he says explicitly, the simple pshat is that he's, talk- that he's seeing them from a high place. The Midrash, according to Midrash, is that this is referring to our fathers and our mothers, peaks and hills, and so on and so forth. So you see clearly that this is a Midrashic way of thinking, 
This is not simple interpretation. Rashi, who is simple, why doesn't Rashi stay to simple? That's the question. Now, the, the, one of the commentators, a Pirish on the Midrash, the Maharza, he's a Pirish on, on the Midrash, says very simple why Rashi di- di- diverged from the simple reading and took a, a, a Midrashic approach. He says, because if you're going to say it means that I'm looking at them from a high place, why was that important to say? Who cares where he's looking at them from? I am now standing at a high place and I'm looking down at Israel. Why is that important in the message that he's on a high place? But if you're going to learn like Rashi says, this is an explanation why he can't curse them. Why can't I curse them? Because they're solid, they're firm, they're powerful, they're indestructible. No, that we understand. That is the Marzaz. So the Marzaz explains, again, it's a good explanation. Rashi was forced to... To, to seek out a midrashic explanation. Why? Because the simple explanation that, he, that he's on a high place just doesn't, doesn't explain why is he talking about this. Who cares that he's in a high place? Why would that be necessary? However, we can't accept that. It's not a good argument. Not a good argument. Because actually, it's very important that Bilam was in a high place. It actually, by Bilam saying those words, we're going to see that the verses make a lot more sense. In other words, if Rashi would not change the, 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 the meaning and Rashi would stick to the simple interpretation that this means like a high place, actually the, the Pasuk would be much simpler. And I'll tell you why. When we take a look further, there's a couple of verses here. I'm not going to read them right now. We're going to get to them soon. Where Bilam is describing his, his continuation of the blessing. So follow with me, verse number 9, Pasuk Tes, Pasuk Yud, and we go to Pasuk Yud Aleph, okay? Verse number 11, Pasuk Yud Aleph, see? Vayoyme Balak el Bilam. Balak says to Bilam, Mel Sicily, what did you do? He couldn't believe what he heard. I took you, I hired you, I brought you out here to curse my enemies. And you blessed them. He gives him an excuse. I told you, I'm going to have to listen to whatever. I, I, I'm in God's hands. I can only do what God says. Fine. So, you know, so in, in verse 13, what does Balak say? So Balak says to him, let's go, let's go somewhere else. And look what he emphasizes. You will see the Jewish people from there. However, only a little sliver of the Jewish people, their end you will see. You won't see them all. And curse me and, and, and curse them for me from there. So you see, what is Balak saying now? Let's try. You know what? Didn't work. Seems like by looking at them, <laughs> you're evoking blessings. Maybe it's because you're seeing them all. Let's move away from here. We're going to go to another spot. Well, you're just going to see a little part of the Jewish people. Not all of them. You won't see the whole camp. And maybe you're going to connect to them because you're looking at them. But since you're not seeing them all, you're going to be able to drive in a curse instead of his blessing. That was the strategy of Bullock. So it would seem to imply that at this time, he was actually looking at all of them. He was looking at all of them. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is if we go back a few verses... We, which, verses we didn't see yet here. Um, ooh, here we are. Uh, oh, chapter, 
you see Perik Chav Gimel, Chav Gimel starts, chapter Chav Gimel, Pasuk Aleph, the verse before that, chapter 22, verse 40, 41, Mem Aleph, 41, Vayhi Baboiker, it was in the morning, Vayikach Bolak as Bilam, Bolak took Bilam up, Vayalehu, when he brought him up, Bomo's Baal, a place called Bomo's, Bomo's means the heights, a high place, Vayar Misham, he saw from there, Kitzehaam, he saw only part of the people. That means the first place they were standing, let's say they were standing at this and this peak. At that peak, they were only able to see part of the people, not all of them. So clearly, the last time, he also only saw part of the people. So what does Bullock mean a few verses later? And he says, you know what? Perhaps it didn't work because you were looking at all of them. Now I'm going to take you to a place where you're only going to see part of them. It seems like the verse is contradicting. Earlier, he also only looked at some of them and not at all of them. Oh, so the answer, however, is how do we, how do we know that Bullock actually, Bilam actually saw of all of them? Oh, so now we'll understand why the Pasuk says, Bilam says, Arenu, I see them. Uh, Bilam himself is saying, I am Arenu, I see them all. And from hills, Ashurenu, I see them all. Oh, so Bilam is actually saying, not like it says earlier that he saw a sliver. He sees them all. What would it mean how? Because Bilam must have left. Balak brought him to a place where you can see part of them. Bilam went up higher to a higher altitude. Yesterday I was climbing with my daughter on a mountain. Amazing. Behind, uh, behind, up in, in the back of Malibu. Uh, the area, I forgot what it's called, but it's, the place that I climbed up was called... Uh, I forgot the name. Uh, an amazing view. So you can see different, different altitudes. You see, you, can, you know what, the vistas that open up are completely different, <laughs> like from your place. <laughs> the higher you go, the, 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 the view is, changes because you, you get a very... So could it be that initially when Balak brought him up, he brought him to a place where he can see part of them. Bilam went up higher, and from there is where he... And he saw all of them. Now Balak is saying to him, that's no good. What, you, you ruined it. You looked at them all. I don't want you to look at them all. Let's go to a different place where you'll only be able to see some of them and not all of them. Now we'll understand why the Pasuk has to say, again, according to the first interpretation, what does it mean? Um, uh, uh, from the tops of mountains I see them. If we would learn, again, if we would learn the simple meaning, that when he says from the tops of mountains I see them means literally that he's standing on top of a mountain and he's looking down at the Jewish people. Right? So that would, it would make sense why the verse has to say that. Because that's the reason that will explain later why he says let's change. Okay? But Rashi doesn't, doesn't learn that way. Rashi says, and I'm not getting to where he's looking at them. He's looking from the top of the mountain. Rashi says it means the Jewish people are compared, they're, they're rooted in the fathers and the mothers and the fathers and the mothers are strong like mountains. Rashi, so comes back to the question, who forced Rashi to change the simple meaning and not stick to the literal explanation, which actually would have been very good because it would have helped us understand the Psukim in general. Okay, that's my question. So what's, what's the answer? What's the We're going to get to that. We're going to get to it. Now to further prove the point. Oh, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Obviously, again, in, in Midrash, now Midrash is a way of looking at things not according to, to actual things. To look a little bit more, to, to be a little looser. In Midrash you can be much looser and you can, you, can, you can bring in much more spiritual ideas. 
you know, uh, you know, he's seeing. But again, Rashi is not stating that. And again, it's interesting. When Rashi does bring a midrash, Rashi usually says midrash agada. It's a midrash. In this place, Rashi doesn't say it's a midrash. That means Rashi is learning that this is the simple reading of this verse from the tops of mountains, I see them, from the hills, I gaze at him. The simple meaning is that the Jewish people are compared to mountains and to hills, or because of our fathers and mothers. Why is he doing that? That's the question. Now, to, make, to, 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 to actually dig in a little deeper, we'll see. Actually, where does Rashi take his explanation? It actually does say so in Midrash. It's a Midrash Tanchuma. And it's a Midrash Rabbah. It's a Midrash in a few... Which the Midrash says clearly that when he says mountains and hills, it's referring to the patriarchs and the mother and the matriarchs. I'll read you the Midrash Tanchuma. The Midrash says, The tops of mountains, these are our fathers. From the hills I gaze at him. These are the mothers. So Rashi... Both hills, one is bigger than the other. So Tzurim is fathers, and Gavois is mothers. But both of them represent... Hold on. So the Midrash states... Especially, so this is Rashi's source, that would be. But what we're going to see now, Rashi is not at all actually sourcing the Midrash, using the Midrash. Because we're going to, look, we're going to do a careful look at Rashi's words, and we're going to see that Rashi actually is not at all following the Midrash. He's making his own original interpretation by slightly altering the Midrash. His words are going to be, why? The Midrash says very clearly, what is Tzurim? Tzurim are big mountains. Gvaot, Gvaos are smaller hills. So the Midrash is saying, Ovos are the fathers, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the, the patriarchs of the Jewish people. And the hills, Elu, these are Imaot, the mothers. Rashi does not say elu ha'avos, elu ha'imaos. Doesn't say that. What does he say? Let's look at the Rashi again carefully. The words Rashi uses is ani mistakel. I look bireshisam at their beginnings, ubetchila sharsheim at their very roots, the origins of their roots. Vani roya oisam. I see them miyusadim chazakim katsurim. They, the Jewish people, are strong like mountains and like hills. Al the Through the fathers and the mothers. So the first thing to notice is Rashi's not saying these, the mountains are the fathers and the hills are the mothers. He's saying the Jewish people are strong like the mountains and the hills, but how are they so strong? They're so strong because of their fathers and their mothers. And others, their origins are what's making them strong. So number one, Rashi is changing the words of the Midrash. Rashi is not saying the mountains and the hills. Bilam is referring to Abraham, to the patriarchs and the matriarchs, our fathers and our mothers. No, first of all, he's referring to the Jewish people, not to them. The Jewish people are strong. Why are we strong? Because we have fathers and mothers. But who is strong? Not the fathers and mothers. Israel is strong. Like what? Like mountains and hills. It's a whole different pirush than the Medrash. The Medrash says that he's, when Bilam is saying, that Bilam is looking and he says, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at the mountains and the hills. I'm looking at your fathers and your mothers. 
Rashi says, no, I'm looking at you and I'm seeing you are strong. Why are you strong? Because of your fathers and your mothers. That's number one. Number two, the reason, I'll take the questions later because it's being, people are listening and they're recording. Okay. Yeah. So the other, the other, um, you remember the question, but <laughs> if it's still be there, if it's still be there. The other, the other, uh, the other, um, oh, what's it called again? The other problem is this that our fathers and our mothers are called harim and gvaot, mountains or tsurim. Over here it doesn't say harim, it says tsurim. And it must, is something that we find many times in Navi. We find it in scripture quite a lot. For example, in um, Yeshaya. Okay, in Isaiah, in Perek Nun, chapter 50, I'll, I'll give you a, 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 that we find. It says, um, no, Nun Aleph, I'm sorry, chapter 51. Shimu Eli, the opening verse in chapter 51 in Isaiah. Shimu Eli, roit feitzedek. Listen to me, those who are chasing after righteousness. Mevakshe Hashem, those that are searching God. Habitu, look, el tzur chatzavtem, look at the rock. From where you've been excavated. Yeah, yeah, but like, but like mountain peaks are also sometimes called rocks because it's tips, tips of mountains that are rocky. So El Tzur Chatzavtem, look at the rock from where you've been excavated. And what does Rashi say? What does Tzur? What does Rashi say Tzur? Uh, that means, ah, mihu Hatzur, who is the rock? Who Avram Avichem, that's Abraham your father. The next verse says it very clearly. The Pasuk says openly, when in continuation to look at your rock from where you've been excavated, Habitu el Avram Avichem, look at Abraham your father. This is one example where you see in Nach, in Navi, that our fathers and mothers are called rocks, hills, rocks, mountains. Um, there's another one in the Haftorah, this week's Haftorah. Parshas Balak, this is from Micha. Okay, the Navi Micha, chapter six. Micha, chapter six, verse number one. Hashem says, "Shimnu Shimu na esasher Hashem Omer." Listen to what God is saying. Kum, get up, riv. If you want to have a fight, you want to quarrel, you want to contest, contest esaharim, contest the mountains. V'sishmana hagvoiz koylech, and let the hills hear your protest. So Rashi says, who's the mountains that should hear? Rashi says, Aharim el esa avois. These are the fathers. Hagavois ha'imois. The gavos are the matriarchs. The patriarchs and the matriarchs. I'm just giving you two examples. In, in, in Navi, and especially in Chazal, in the, in the writings of, 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 of Mishnah and Talmud, you have a lot of references to fathers and mothers being rocks. And, 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 and. So why isn't it that the Midrash brings a verse to prove it? But Rashi doesn't bring a Pasuk to say that Surim is the fathers and Gavoyis is the mothers. Why doesn't Rashi do that? It, it, would help, it would help us understand, especially since Rashi wants to prove everything according to Pshat. If you bring me a Pasuk where it says, it refers to our fathers, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov as, as rocks and mountains, it would be much clearer. Rashi chooses not to say that. For whatever reason, not to bring a proof to it. So all of this is leading us to what I, I, I started hinting to you earlier. Rashi is not at all following the Midrash. 
Rashi has his original explanation in this whole thing because Rashi was bothered by a major, by, by, by a very, very simple question. Uh, this is the, the Rebbe's, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's original thought. That the Rebbe had a brilliant way, has a brilliant way of, of learning Rashi. So the Rebbe says, and it's amazing because sometimes like you take a look at all the commentaries and everybody gives their explanations and the Rebbe knocks them all off and the Rebbe says, like, we have to take a step back. <laughs> we have to look at the whole story. And then we see something, we see what was bothering Rashi. And, 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 and after, the, it's so brilliant, but afterwards it's like, yeah, it's so simple, why nobody think of that? <laughs> and, then he, and then he offers explanation. So the Rebbe says there was something bothering Rashi over here which made Rashi not be able to learn that Bilam is standing on a mountain, that he's speaking, that when he says, I'm standing on a mountain and I'm looking at the Jewish people, he's referring to him standing on a mountain. And it's one word. What's the word? As an introduction to all of Bilam's words, let's go to the Pasuk, I, I read to you verse number ten, nine. Let's go one, uh, not one, uh, Pasuk Zion. Go back. Verse, Pasuk Zion, verse seven. You see? In the bottom there, Vayisa Mishaloi. You see? Perik of Gimel. You see? Pe Zion. Now, which page are you on? No, the same page that he's got. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You see the verse? Vayisa Mishaloi, and he raised his metaphor. Vayomer, and he says. <laughs> and the Rebbe says that one word, metaphor. The verse is saying clearly that Bilam is going to tell you a metaphor. So the Rebbe says, hold it. Let's take a look at the next three verses when Bilam is speaking, and let's try to find the metaphor. What's a metaphor? A metaphor is when you're using, you're, you, you're trying to say something, but you're not saying it directly. You're comparing something to something else. You're, you're doing a comparison. One thing is compared to something else, and that's the idea of a metaphor. Right? It's a parable, like a mashal. A mashal means a metaphor. So therefore, our verse must... One second. So there has to be saying a metaphor. It can't be straight talk. It has to be metaphoric. Something has to be a metaphor. Then the Rebbe says, hold it. Take a look. In the next three psukim, there isn't one word that's a metaphor. Let's see. Let's read together. Let's, let, let's see. If the first thing he says... Vayomer, this is what he said. Let's read all the words that Bilam says. Min Aram yanchenu Balak. From Aram, Balak is calling me. Aram is a place. And that's where Balak called him. Melech Moyav, the king of Moyav. Meharare Kedem, from ancient mountains. That's not a metaphor. These were old mountains. Lecha Arali Yaakov, come curse Jacob. Ulecha Za'amo Yisrael, and, and evoke the wrath against Israel. Nothing metaphoric over here. And then he says, wait. What can I curse? It's, it's nice language, but there's no metaphor here. What am I going to curse? God did not curse. What am I going to evoke wrath? God did not evoke any wrath. Oh. Now let's skip this one line over here. Let's skip me. Let's, no, no, but not the whole verse. The second half of the verse. Hold on. No, 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 let's read the beginning of this. If we say, if we're going to learn the simple meaning, like all the other commentators, because from the tops of mountains I see him, literally, I'm standing on a mountain, I'm looking down at them. Is there a metaphor here? No. From the hilltops, I gaze at him. Is there a metaphor here? He's on a high place, he's looking at them. The Jewish people live alone. 
They don't mix with the nations. Is that a metaphor? No. Oh, so perhaps we can say, here, here's we can probably say, maybe it's a metaphor. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Oh, perhaps, oh, now we hit the metaphor. Why? Because what does it mean, the dust of Jacob? So all the commentators say, besides Rashi, <laughs> besides Rashi, all the commenta- a lot of the commentators say, who can count the dust of Jacob means that the Jewish people are as numerous as the dust. Dust is a lot. God told Israel they're going to be as numerous as the dust. So the dust is so much. And and who can count the, the, a quarter of Israel, whatever. So we can say that this is the metaphor because he's comparing the, nu- the numerousness. He's comparing the Jewish people that there are so many. How much? Like dust. That's a metaphor. Oh, that would be able to. It would be good. But Rashi can't say that. Because Rashi has a different interpretation on me, mana, afar, Yaakov. Rashi says, who can count the dust of Yaakov? Yaakov says, kit targum, I like the targum. When you look at, when you look at the targum, what does targum say on afar, Yaakov? The targum says, man, yechol, lemimne, who can count the adikayot, the base Yaakov, the children of Yaakov. Now children, so dust is not that they're compared to dust. Dust actually means the children. Why? Because in Hebrew, the, the, the word afar, um, the reason why dust is called afar because it's very thin and small. Like the word in, in Targum, adikaya comes from the word dak. Dak means thin. So children, because they're small, they're infants, they're small people, so they're afar. So that's not metaphor, that's a name for children. Or, like some want to say, the word um, Afar comes from the word ofer ayalim. Like in Shira Shirim, it says ofer ayalim. Ofer ayalim means a young buck, a young, um, a young uh, gazelle, ofer. So according to that, afar comes from the word ofer, which means young. So there's no metaphor here. Mimana, who can count the youngsters of Jacob? And that's the name of youngsters, is that they're called... It's not that they compare to dirt. It's not a... Comp- Again, what's a metaphor? I'm comparing one thing to something else. But there's no comparison to anything of the hills. There's not one word of a metaphor. And Rashi's second pirush, that's one pirush. Rashi's second pirush on Afar Yaakov, who can count the mitzvot the Jewish people do with dirt? We do a lot of mitzvot with dirt. What are the mitzvahs we do with dirt? Number one, we cover up the blood of an animal. Interesting, Rashi doesn't say we bury someone in the dirt that's a mitzvah. Rashi doesn't say that. He says we cover up when we shecht a bird or, a, or an animal. We don't have to do it by a, by a cow or a sheep, but when you shecht, it's called kisoy hadam. You, you, you cover up the, 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 with, with, with dirt. Another mitzvah you do with dirt is by the soto when you check the, the woman if she was unfaithful to her husband. You take dirt and you put it in the water and you mix it and you give it to drink the soto. So there are mitzvahs that the Jewish people do with dirt. And that's the meaning, mimana afar Yaakov. Who can count? Comes out that afar Yaakov following, Afar Yaakov, according to Rashi, doesn't mean something that's compared to dirt. It means literally dirt. According to this, there's no, there's, there's no metaphor. Every verse we read till now is not a metaphor. Now, it's interesting. The next few times, now you might say, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this. Who says that every time metaphor means metaphor? I remember, remember I said in the beginning, Bilam speaks three times. 
Actually, he speaks four times, but the, the last time he's not directing towards Israel. Four times he speaks. Each time it says he, he says he started with a metaphor, each one of them, there is metaphoric language. For example, I'll give you an example. He says, a star will rise from Jacob. That's referring to a leader, King David. The leader, he will rise. The fact that you're calling a king a star, that's metaphoric. Just like a star is in the sky and it's so great, so too a superstar. You know? a, a, a star, that's metaphoric. Or the, or the time before that. He says the Jewish people, Matovu Alecha Yaakov, how beautiful are your are your tents, Israel, right? And then he says, Kinnechalim Nitoyu, like the rivers they are, they are planted, like the streams, like the river. So you're comparing them to rivers, and so on and so forth. Or another one, he says, Hainam Kilavi Yakum, they get up like a young lion. Uke, 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 Ari, I'm like a strong lion, right? They crouch and they're strong, whatever. So that's a metaphor. Every single time when Bilam spoke, you can find the metaphor. The Rebbe says in these few psukim, the verse says it's a metaphor and there is no metaphor. There's nothing that's a metaphor. Everything is upright. So that's what forced Rashi, see, to change the meaning that Bilam is not standing. If he's saying I'm standing on top of a mountain, I'm looking at them, there's no metaphor. Rashi says, where's the metaphor in these words? He says, what does he say? Kimerosh tsurim arenu. From the tops of mountains I see him. Rashi says, it doesn't mean I'm standing on top of a mountain and I'm looking at them. That's not a metaphor. He's saying, I'm looking at the Jewish people and I'm seeing that they're strong and hard like a rock. Like a powerful, uh, um, solid rock. That's metaphoric. Again, a metaphor is always when you're comparing one thing to something else. You're saying one thing, you're comparing them. So that's why Rashi changes. And Rashi learns that we're talking about that the Jewish people are hard like a rock because it opens up with the word mashal, a mashal, and a mashal needs to be something that I'm comparing one thing to something else. Is that? So that's why Rashi did not want to say that he, the simple... Because he needed to find a metaphor. Now, this will also explain why Rashi slightly changes the Pirush of the Midrash. He doesn't say the Midrash and he gives his own Pirush. <laughs> he says, very brilliant. He says, the Midrash says, the mountains and the hills, they're the patriarchs and the matriarchs. They are the mountains and the hills. So then the Rebbe says, that's also not, met that's also not metaphoric. Why is it not metaphoric? Very simple. The Rebbe says, because once we find in the Torah many times that that's one of, the, one of the characteristics or one of the names we name the fathers and the mothers, then it's not we're comparing them to the mountains. It's a name of who they are. For example, we say Tzur Yisrael, Kuma Be'ezrat Yisrael, right? And then and the Nusach Chabad, it's one of, the, one of the verses that I miss because in, <laughs> when, you daven, I, when I grew up as a child, I didn't daven Nusach Hari. Um, but... Um, the, the Nusachari is the Chabad Nusach when I got older and I, I started uh, davening that way. So Chabad actually slices this, this, this Pasuk out. It's not there in the Nusach. Tzur Yisrael. It's a beautiful word. Tzur Yisrael, the strong one of Israel. So, who's referring to God? God is the strong one. I don't think that's metaphoric. Obviously, God is not a rock. But one of the names of God is that he's Tzur Yisrael. He's the strong one of Israel. Like I give an example, the sages say that shalom, 
is one of the names of God. God is called peace. Shalom. Obviously, God is called a peace because everywhere there is a presence of God, there is peace. God brings peace. He's the ultimate unifier between opposites or whatever the explanation is. But it's not metaphoric. It's one of his names. So Rashi doesn't, Rashi can't say like the Medrash. That what? That Bilam is saying, um, I see them. I see their mountains. I see their, because then he's, again, he's not comparing something to something else. He's just talking about a fact. There, I see their mountains. I see their, their source. I see their beginning. That's why Rashi says, no, no, no. Bilam is not talking about fathers and mothers. He's talking about the Jewish people. They, they, they are strong. He, he's, he's talking about the strength of Israel. What's Israel's strength? The strength of Israel, how strong are they? He's giving a comparison. They are strong like rocks and like hills. And that's, and, 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 and right? It's a, so why is he, so why at all, why does he have to bring in the fathers and the mothers in the first place? Who's talking about fathers and mothers? Then he's, if Rashi's interpreting it that the Jewish people are strong like rocks, why does Rashi say, al yedei avos ve'imois, through fathers and mothers? Very simple. Because the Pasuk doesn't say, I see rocks. The Pasuk doesn't say, ki tsurim arenu. It says, me rosh tsurim. What does rosh tsurim mean? The beginnings of mountains. The starting of mountains. From the word rosh, we know that we're talking about the beginnings of the Jewish people. But the actual tsurim and givaot, which means strong, solid, like rocks and stone, that's not the father's. That's the Jewish people. Why are the Jewish people strong? Because their fathers and mothers made them rock solid steel, hard, like rocks, and, 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 and so forth. Now you have a marshal. Understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he sees them is not the issue here. The point over here is, in that way, Rashi was able to capture that there is a mushal over here, or else there wouldn't be a mushal, because everything would be straight talk. This is the only, the only place Rashi was able to find that in this first blessing, there is something that's a mushal. The mushal is, the metaphor is, the Jewish people are compared to a rock and to a stone. This is the simple meaning of the Rashi. Now we go into a little bit of an esoteric, deeper idea which comes out of all of this. And what comes out of all of this? When do we have to give a metaphor? You know, there, a metaphor is something that should be used only selectively. That means metaphors are very important, are a very important teaching tool. Teachers need to be able to use metaphors. But teachers who always use metaphors destroy the metaphor. Metaphors are only needed when the class is too abstract or too deep or there's a concept here that's a little hard for, the, for a simple person or for the child or whatever it is to, to wrap their mind around because it's a little abstract, it's a little distant. So you find something similar that's closer to the world of the student and you give a metaphor. And from understanding the metaphor, they can understand an abstract concept. You know, I'll give an example. You know, the, 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 the teacher is teaching, you know, uh, first graders... Uh, five-year-olds, the concept that two plus two is four. Two plus two, the concept of an abstract number doesn't exist in a child. What do you mean two? Two what? So the teacher has to actually take out two blocks or two fire trucks and another two fire trucks, right? And put them together. So how many fire trucks do we have? 
Or you have two fire trucks and another two, you have four fire trucks. So when the child can see that two, two and two, and he can count now there's four, and so then he can, you know, as he gets older, he'll be able to abstract the idea, the idea that it's not only fire trucks. It's actually candies as well, and lollipops as well. And actually, it can be numbers without an object. The concept. So you give a metaphor when you're dealing with something. If, the, if it's, it's not a metaphor, you're, giving, you're comparing. It's called a comparison. It's not really a metaphor, but a comparison. You're comparing something, which is used as a muscle. You're using it as a muscle. So the idea of a, and sometimes it's a more elaborate metaphor. You want to give over a very deep story. So the, the Midrash says, Mashal Lamelech, it's a Mashal to a king that had a one and only child, and so on and so forth. Then he paints the whole Mashal. One of the famous um, 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 teachers of metaphors was known as the Dubner Magid. He was the most fascinating Mashal giver. Every single one of his speeches was filled with the most fascinating um, metaphors. And that's because he had certain teachings that he wanted to bring out the sharpness of it. And when you first heard the story and you heard the metaphor, you were able to assimilate and grasp and understand and integrate the idea much deeper into you. But a teacher, when a concept is very, very simple and very straight, and you don't need a metaphor, and you're using a metaphor, then it's just superfluous. We have to say that if Bilam is talking about the strength of the Jewish people, and he's giving an example that they compared to a rock. That their strength is compared to a rock. It's because Bilam was having a hard time to explain to Balak, to, Balak, to his audience, these were all the, Mo the Moabite princes, what the strength of the Jewish people is. He could have said they are very mighty and they're very strong. What does he have to give a marshal? The reason he has to give a marshal about their strength, he's comparing it to a rock, is because Bilam knows that the true strength of Israel is something so abstract, so otherworldly, that there is no way that the Gentile can grasp their strength. In other words, it's not just strong. Many things are strong. There are many people that are strong. And different ways of being strong. You can be physically strong, you can be psychologically strong, you can be, you know, there are many ways of a person being strong. But the strength of the Jewish people is a different type of strength. It's an otherworldly strength. It's an, it's, it's an infinite strength. It's a boundless strength. And it's one, as we're going to see in a moment, that is entirely different than the definition of strength that there is in worldly things. So he's trying to find something to be able to, to give some kind of a metaphor. So he says, it's compared to the solidness of a rock, something like that, to find something. Because really the true strength of Israel is something so deep, it needs, I'm saying it needs a muscle. You have to give it over with something tangible because it itself is difficult to understand. What's the strength of the Jewish people? So obviously the strength of the Jewish people is not a physical strength. We're not... The Jewish people were never throughout history the biggest muscle men in the world. So it's not a physical strength. You know, we know the idea of the survival of the fittest. And we know that this fact that the Jewish people survived the exile uh, goes against the rule of the survival of the fittest. We have not been physically necessarily the strongest people uh, physically in our strength. Now, thank God, Israel, thank God, is the Abishter stands by them. and They're a pretty mighty uh, entity. But in general, Israel throughout throughout all of our history, it's not the physical strength. Obviously, we're talking about the spiritual power of the Jewish people, which translates, obviously, into our physical bodies, and therefore, we have the survival of, it, of the Jewish people because we are super strong. So it's a spiritual strength. 
But in the spiritual strength itself, is it the mind? Is it the Jew? People might argue and say the Jewish people have survived because they're brilliant, because they're they're cunning. They have such uh, such. They're they always outsmarted their enemies. There was always that brilliant. It's not that. The real strength of the Jewish people really is the inner inner core of the neshama, of the soul. The deepest point of the soul, which as we know, according to the Kabbalists and according to Hasidut, is a piece of God from above. And just like God is uncrushable, indestructible, is infinite and absolute, and therefore indefeatable and unerasable, right? Hashem cannot be deleted. He is, and He is forever and ever for all of eternity. Since there is a piece of Him inside every single Jew, that gives and that explains the durability and the continuity of the Jewish people forever and ever. To the point that even if all of existence and all of everything would come to an end, according to some interpretations, that's what Bilam said when he met, they're a nation that lives alone. That means even if mankind will end, Israel, the Jewish people, will never end. They're forever and ever in eternal existence, forever and ever, forever for all of eternity. Why? What is the secret of that? So here's the real strength. The real true spiritual power of the Jewish people is the power of, not of survival, the power of the Jewish people is their power to transcend themselves. And completely, and here's the secret, completely abnegate themselves from existence into non-existence. Which is the total opposite of how we usually define strength. Something that's strong means it, it, it it, it's strong is that it has to be. It is. It is firm. Its existence is firm, solid, strong, and therefore it remains in existence. See, the magic of the Jewish people is that the Jewish people can dissolve. Every Jewish man or woman has an intrinsic power to dissolve his or herself completely into God. To dissolve into non-beingness. And where do we find that? What was really astonishing through the history of the Jewish people is the stubbornness of the connection of the Jewish people to God. To the point that, whether it was the Roman savages who tried to rip and destroy and crush the Jewish people, it goes earlier back to the Babylonians, it goes back to the Egyptians who wanted to already wipe the Jewish people, it goes back to Lavan, as we say in the Agada, that Lavan wanted to be kesh la'akor esako. We go through the Seder by night and we say, God's promise that stood by the Jews, not one nation, oh, whether it's the Inquisition, whether it was the USSR, the, the communists who tried to, uh, the Soviets who tried to wipe out the Jewish people, and mainly they wanted to disconnect the Jewish people from observance. They wanted to sever the Jewish people's connection from God. Whether it was the Nazis and during the Holocaust, whether it was Chemlanitsky during the uprising, all the forces in the world, the crusaders and the Jewish people, a vulnerable minority scattered across the entire world with, there has not been any effort spirit to rid the, rid the Jewish people physically from this world, but also and very strongly to cause the Jewish people to totally assimilate into the nations. To accept another, whether it was the Greeks, one of the famous ones, or the Spaniards, and so on and so forth. And yet Jewish people have a certain, the, the strength of the Jewish people, according to Hasidut, amazing strength, according to the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, is that the Jewish people, is, the Jewish people, the Jewish person, men or women, will never sever their connection with God. At the cost of what? At the cost of everything. In other words, the person willfully, willfully, without a question, when he or she feels that one is, one is, cutting 
them off. One, that someone, any, any, any Gentile, whoever it is, that's trying to disconnect and sever the Jew from his Jewishness, from his connecting to God, will say, or has said throughout history, if, it, if I have to die for this, I will die for this. Now you find, now let me explain something, you find what we call, um, 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 this is called, uh, when people die for what they believe, um, no, what's the word, uh, martyrdom. You find martyrdom, the altar, it's a very, very strong principle in the writings of Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi and Tanya. Because he explains that martyrdom we find amongst other saintly, you know, people in other religions. You know, Christianity is a bunch of saints who died for, for God's sake. Uh, in Islam, there's also those who died for, the, for, the, for, their, for their belief. So the, 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 what, what's, uniquely, what's unique about the Jewish faith? So the alternative explains an interesting thing. He says that usually in other nation, in other in other circles, when people gave up their lives for their belief, it was people who practiced and were very pious and very devoted during their lifetime to their to their religion, to what they believed in. And when someone wanted to erase what they believed in, in other words, they identified so much with what they believed in to the point there was no point for them to going on and living their life. It was if it was against everything they believed in. But these were people who you saw in them, you recognized, you saw, you felt, you recognized that they are living all their life. They were the, like the super holy religious of the religious. Amongst the Jews, it was the simple people and it was many times the people that were unlearned, un, un, uninspired, not rabbis, not the great thinkers, not the great leaders. It was like all across the board. And many times, people that were pretty much sinners during their life, people that didn't care so much about Judaism during their life, didn't care so much about the mitzvot, but yet, when, when, when they wanted to force them into the, into the church to baptize them, they were willing to take a plunge of the dagger in their heart. They were willing to be burnt in the fire. They were willing to be killed. Like we have masses of communities. In the, and they weren't tzaddikim. It was young and old. And the Alter Rebbe proves from this that it's almost instinctive. It's not impossible. We do find Jews who, 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 who left their faith and left. But for example, today's days, when you have so many Jews who are assimilated and so on, it's not that they gave up being Jewish. If you tell them that they're not Jew, they're not a Jew, they get very insulted. It's just that they're not necessarily connecting Judaism with what we understand as Judaism, as Torah Judaism. But people, they are, people are very proud of their Jewishness, and don't you dare tell them that I'm not Jewish because I'm, because I'm, I'm, I'm pro-Palestinian and so on and so forth. Quite on the contrary, he or she feels that that's his Jewishness. In other words, that's the way I fight for my, for what, in, in, in the minds of some people, it, 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 what is Judaism? Judaism is to be a good person and to care about uh, whatever. And, 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 and So there are the yeah, tikkun olam or whatever it is and therefore they're fighting for it. But, but for that, they'll fight to the very, very death. In other words, a devotion that's almost insane, that's beyond being this. It, oh, it could translate into sickness. I'm, I'm, I'm showing it. It could translate. But what I, the, the point over here is there is a kernel of attachment Yes, the Pintaliyid, it's a kernel of attachment to God that transcends reason and rational thinking to the point, really what it is, is, is that at the, at the very, very core of the Jew, the question is not what's in it for me, but what is the truth? And for the truth, he's willing to die. It's not what is beneficial for me. Every other creature and every other being ultimately asks the question, what am I going to gain of it? In other words, because substance, beingness, wants to exist. The ability to not be, 
the ability to become dissolved from existence for something totally bigger than you, in our case, the Jewish soul, for its truth of God that it feels very, very strongly, is something that is a strength that doesn't exist. It's interesting, the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya that it doesn't even come from us. It comes, first of all, it's an inheritance, he says. It's an inheritance we have from our what? From our forefathers, from our fathers and mothers. It was genealogically passed down in the DNA of the Jewish people that the Jewish people have this power of transcendence of self. And another thing the Alter Rebbe says, it's not even coming from the person. It's because God Almighty shines into the neshama, into the soul. We're not conscious of it. But because internally in our essence, the truth of God is so vivid because God is vividly beaming himself into the inner space of the soul, at that point, God is truer to us than we are ourselves. And therefore, the Jew is able to melt into non-existence instantly. Now, here's the thing. When we are him, he is indestructible. So everything that's strong, no matter what it is, no matter how, any entity that's strong, a creation is finite. So any strength that there is in all of existence has a finite strength. I mean, as strong as it is, something stronger can, can, can come hypothetically and destroy it. The one thing that cannot be destroyed is God. And he's infinitely true and he's indestructible. Since the Jewish soul's ability to dissolve and become, integrate itself into his existence, so the Jew's presence and strength is, is God's strength, and that strength is indestructible. And therefore, the, and for that very reason is why the Jewish people last for all of eternity. And that's why it's something that, as we said earlier, it needs a metaphor. Because, you, because, because the, the, the Moabite princes could not understand that, because strength as it is usually defined is strength of beingness, strength of presence, the Jewish strength is the strength of devotion, of commitment, of devotion, of commitment to the point that it's infinitely committed, it's infinitely devoted to the point of total transcendence of self, the power of Mesirat Nefesh. And that's why the Jew endures. Because when you want to destroy something, you can destroy, but you can't destroy nothingness. And the Jew's strength is in being nothing, meaning not being, but yet in the non-being we exist. We exist as him, not as us. And that's why it's, they're indestructible. The existence for the Jewish people will be forever and ever. And that's what Rashi means, two things. That this strength, Rosh Tzurim, Rosh Tzurim is the, exactly what you said before. Rosh Tzurim is the Pintaliyid. That's the Rosh Tzurim. And Bilam is looking at us. The first thing he saw, because he was a prophet, he was able to, I mean, God opened up his eyes. The externals of the Jewish people fell away. When he looked at them, he saw three million sparks of God camping in the desert. And when he saw that Pintaliyid, he said, this is a different strength. This is Rosh Tzurim. This is their beginning. And he recognized where we get it. As Rashi says, 
our strength comes from our fathers and our mothers. It's not something that we produce. In other words, it's an inborn thing. Every Jew has this peace of God from above to transcend all self-motive and any self-gain and give himself, her, him or herself over for something real and bigger than self. And I want to conclude this, this idea, which tonight, as I mentioned earlier, is the day of the liberation of the, of the previous Chabad, Rebbe Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. So here was a man who stood up against the entire Soviet Union. They arrested him. When they arrested him, it wasn't just because they arrested one of the people who were spreading Yiddishkeit. He was their arch enemy. He, in him they saw the man that's keeping the flame of Judaism alive. And obviously, it, sadly, it was the Jews themselves. It was the Yavasitska, it was the Jews themselves, the Jewish communists. They could not stand this rabbi who is not picking up the new ideology, you know, um, ideology of, 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 of communism and so on and so forth. So whatever it was, but they, meanwhile, they had the power of the full power of the Soviet regime behind them. They took him and they arrested him. And when he was a, took a, taken into prison, he was taken into the most notorious prison. People shuddered by hearing the name, Spolenka was its name. It was literally the, the most frightening place. And no one came out of there. And people were shot and killed. Or if anything, if you went anywhere, you went to 30, 20, 10, 20, 30 years labor camp. If you got out. There was no need for them to actually explain anything. They, did, they killed people without trials. They, it was horrible. Anyways, the Rebbe was actually condemned to die. They initially had condemned him to die. And then they, by firing squad, then they changed it for 10 years labor. It was a miracle, beyond a crazy miracle. Then they, good, big international pressure was put. But still, they, they you know, uh, Raul Wallenberg also had international pressure. They tried to get him out. The, the guy who he also disappeared by the Soviets, the person who was the righteous Gentile who saved thousands and thousands of Jews during the Holocaust. And yet he disappeared. I mean, the Soviets, they've, they've, they, whenever they don't like, uh, they, they've, they've been, they've, yeah, they have their own way. Yet the previous Rebbe, miraculously, they, 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 they had such animosity to him, yet they, 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 they were forced. First, they, again, they, they annulled his decree of death. Then they annulled his decree to being sent for 10 years in labor camp. Finally, they sufficed. That was the final verdict. They're sending him for three years to exile. And exile means that you live in a forsaken, forsaken Siberian corner somewhere, and uh, he wasn't working in a labor camp, but you really cut off from everybody. And most people who went to these places, the living conditions, especially someone who was not physically fit for it, and uh, wasn't used to that, most of the people, either they would die or get very ill. He was at that time um, in his 50s. Um, when they sent him off, this is the sixth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, the Rebbe's father-in-law. When they sent him off to prison, to, to exile, his Hasidims came to say goodbye to him. And he was standing on the train platform. Now, now imagine this. This person just managed to escape. He, he, you, any other person going out of that prison would be like, you know, you've got to watch your step. He's standing. They're watching him because the guards are there because he's not a free man now. They're sending him to exile for three years. The Hasidim come to say goodbye. He's standing on the plane, to, on the train platform, and he's addressing the Hasidim, the, all the Jews that were there. And this is what he says to them. He, he says that, that um, he says a quote from his father. These are his words. It's not with our will that we left the land of Israel. We as a Jewish people. 
It's not with our will that we, li- that we left the land of Israel. And it's not with our own powers that we're going to come back to the land of Israel, meaning for the ultimate redemption. Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king, drove us into exile, and he will take us out of exile. The Yekabitz he will gather our gatherings, from the four, four corners of the earth, the, and he will lead us in an upright pasture through Mashiach, Goyal Tzedek, Lartzenu Akdosha. He will lead us to Israel, But listen to these words. So speaks a lion. But this, all the nations that are under, that are on the face of the earth need to know that only our bodies did God send into exile and made submissive to the various different foreign entities, foreign uh, uh, um, powers. Only our bodies were scattered and gave into the nations. But our souls were never sent to exile and not subservient to any, any people. So we need to say openly, that's what he says, to the eyes of everybody, that whatever is, whatever belongs, or whatever is, um, whatever relates to our religion, to our faith, which is Torah and mitzvot, and Jewish customs, we the Jewish people do not have any, anybody who can tell us what, there's not the business of anybody else to tell us what to do. And, the, and no force should be applied from any nation or from any people to try to meddle with our personal observance of Torah and mitzvahs. Yes, taxes, this, that, Jewish people, physically, we were given under the nations. We need to say with the strongest stubbornness, he says, starke Yiddish akshonis. We need to say with our strong Jewish stubbornness, with our thousand-year Jewish self-sacrifice, martyrdom. Do not touch the anointed one, and in its prophets do not harm, meaning don't harm the Jews. The Rebbe is standing over here and saying that we have to stand and look the entire world in the face and say, we the Jewish people, we've survived thousands of years of exile. We are a people that are not, will not bend, like, like Mordechai. We will not bend and we will not bow down. Anything, yes, we find ourselves over here under the Soviet Union and whatever physically needs to be in our powers to help the government and, and whatever things they can put upon us, yes, we're in exile. We're not, we're, not, we're not our free people. But when it comes to Judaism, when it comes to matters of Judaism, no one in the world has any right to tell us what to do because our souls, God, never submitted to the nations of the world. I'm just saying that you're talking about a power of Mesirat Nefesh, a power of... He knew that in any second they could take him right off and shoot him in the back of the head. Yet a Rebbe stands there with such powerful... And what did he do? He invigorated his hundreds... When, in the end what happened was a week later when he arrived over there on Yud Bey's time. That happened on Gimel Thomas, the third day of Thomas. A week later, when he finally arrived there, sadly going to spend three years over there, they notified him that he's free to go. And they completely released him. That was the big miracle of today. Why? Because when a Jew uncovers that spark of Judaism, that, that, that pure divine light, the pure divine spark that's within us, no power in the world has any, any, any cannot, can't stand it. 
Problem is, you know, it's hard for us to, to expose that. It, 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 it's, you know, we, 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 we're covered, we're concealed. But when you have a tzaddik, when you have a righteous Jew, when you have a holy yid who peels away all the externalities and stands and allows the spark of Nesirat Nefesh, the power. And when the Rebbe stood there, think about it, when the, when the, when the six Chabad Rebbe stood there, it wasn't only him standing there. He was representing the, mil, the thousands of Jews who were killed by the Crusaders. He was representing the thousands of Jews who stood for the, for the, for the Inquisition. He was representing all the Jews who died. He represented all of Israel with that Mesirat Nefesh, saying there's nobody in the world that has any power over us. And that's the strength that Bilam was talking about. That's what's going to endure. That's going to withstand all anti-Semitism. It's going to withstand all the forces in the world that want to harm us because the Jewish people are connected to Hashem with an everlasting strength and the strength is not a human strength the strength is not even an angelic strength the strength is the strength of God himself his existence is absolute enduring forever and ever the Jews connection and attachment to Hashem and the willingness therefore to hold on at all costs is an unbreakable power that is existing that is embedded in every Jew forever and ever. And the interesting thing is, it doesn't get any weaker and weaker and weaker throughout the generations. We would think that any cultural belief gets weaker as you go further and further away from the origins. But being that this is not about us, it's not coming from us, it's coming from Hashem, from the spark of Him. Every single Jew today has that same ability in his inner core, not necessarily we're conscious of it, but every single person has the potential for such stubbornness and such connection, the same way like our father Abraham. Because it's, it's, a pure, it's a pure spark of God and God doesn't change. So as that spark travels through the, throughout generation after generation, it's unchanging, it's unweakening, it's as strong as it was the day it first manifested in this world. When Abraham f jumped into the fire, when Nimrod wanted to put him in, it's the same fire and that same devotion and same connection that remains forever and ever. And that's the real meaning of Meirosh Tzurim, like Rashi says. I see them strong, solid. They, they get it from their fathers, but it's their strength, and therefore they are unbreakable and forever and ever. Thank you. Just one second.